So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. So I can't remember off the top of my head, but does anyone remember how many verses we went through last week in 1 Samuel? I don't remember the exact number, but it was a lot, right? It was one and most of a chapter, a long chapter and a part, we'll say. Well, today we're doing a very different approach. We're looking at one verse, uh, John 1.14. But if you think that the time is going to uh, proportion equally, I'm sorry to disappoint there. Uh, unfortunately not. But as you're flipping there, John 1.14, and we'll read that in just a moment. But first, as we're considering where we are, the fact that it's Christmas Eve, what is it about Christmas that makes us so sentimental? As we stop and we remember those traditions of the past, we're almost transported through time. Now, sometimes we remember the chaos of Christmas season's past, but more often than not, we paint them with this golden coating, reminiscing about the days of old. You know, if we can just get back to there, if we can just recreate those Christmases and everything will be amazing, because those were the good old days. And often... We place those sentiments in our new celebration plans for the current year. So if we can just pull off the perfect Christmas morning, if we can put together the ideal Christmas party or the ideal family gathering, then we're going to be happy, we're going to be satisfied, it's going to be great. And yet how often do we make it through the holidays only to find ourselves disappointed? Because somehow Christmas just didn't live up to the hype that we placed upon it. And my guess is that not many of you will say that out loud or admit it out loud, but I know you have felt that at some point. With lights, parties, family, and even presents, how is it that more often than not we still aren't satisfied with our Christmases? And when that is unrealized, it almost becomes a form of grief. In our hearts, we get through the Christmas season, this happy time, and then we're sad. We're a little down at the start of January. And ironically, few things bring this sense of grief, the sense of we missed out on something to the surface better than our feelings around this holiday of Christmas. But those desires can actually be good in one way. Because they can help us to see past this present world and to ask ourselves some deeper questions. What is it you really want? What is it that could truly make you happy and content? Well, the famous line from Augustine's Confessions helps us to understand. It gets us on the right track. It says, You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and the heart is restless until it rests in you. So the sense of longing you feel during this season, what really needs to happen is that it needs to be redirected. You need to be retrained to seek the glory of God rightly. Because only then can you ever really be satisfied. Only then will will Christmas ever mean what it actually should mean to you. The eternal Son of glory came to the earth for you. And because Christ came to earth, you must see His glory in him. So with that introduction, let's read John 1, 14. And pay attention because it's a long section, long verse here. John writes, And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before we go any further, I have to admit that this is one of my all-time favorite verses in Scripture, period. I love John 1.14. And so, of course, it's the perfect Christmas topic, right? All right, well, the opening two verses of the book of Hebrews says this. It says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And those verses summarize very well what it is we're looking at here in John 1.14. The division of the Bible between the Old and New Testaments, it finds its hinge at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Everything that precedes the incarnation pointed forward to it, while everything that follows is the effect of the incarnation. So in the opening chapter of John, Jesus is presented as the divine logos, the eternal word of God. So all that the Old Testament word pointed to was realized in the coming of the Son of God in human form. And the entirety of the New Testament is explaining how Christ realized all those expectations, all those Old Testament promises. So in the first point, we're going to look at those Old Testament promises and pictures. And then the second point, we're going to see how Christ realized those pictures in the incarnation. So the first point, glory predicted. Now it's been said by some that the story of the Bible is a grand love story. The love of God for a people he made in his own image, it really drives forward the whole story of redemption. The Lord made mankind upright and holy from the outset. Adam and Eve were able to walk with the Lord and experience perfect fellowship with him. There was nothing standing in the way of their relationship. The glory of the Lord was their life and their joy. It was their happiness. But as you all know, our first parents chose instead to rebel. They chose instead to disobey. They wanted to become like God instead of being with God. And as a result of their original sin, death entered into the world and the fall occurred. But the worst part of the fall, it was not in physical death. It was not even in the ground being cursed. The worst part was that that perfect fellowship that Adam and Eve had enjoyed with God was broken. It was damaged. The glory of the Lord brought joy and life before they sinned. But after eating the fruit, the approach of a glorious and holy God brought terror and shame to man. And back in Genesis, when it says that they hid themselves because they were naked, it was not just shame over their bodies. That line means that they knew that they were sinful and unworthy before God. Their sin became highlighted before the presence of God's holiness. And therefore, they were incapable of seeing the glory of the Lord correctly in their fallen state. And so shame and fear overtook them. They were spiritually separated from God with no way to redeem themselves. And that is the problem of mankind. And so the rest of the Old Testament is working out that problem of how a glorious and a holy God can redeem and dwell with his creation. 
So as you follow the Old Testament, you see that the Lord continually preserved a remnant of believers in every age. By grace, he called the patriarchs and walked with them. Noah, Abraham, and Jacob saw visions of the glory of God. And yet every vision of God was a veiled vision of God. Later, God called his people out of Egypt and made them into the nation through which the promise of the Savior would one day be realized. And it's in this context that the Lord displayed his glory to his people through the tabernacle. God presented himself to Israel through the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the precursor to the temple where the ark of the Lord resided and sacrifices were offered. And it was upon the tabernacle that God appeared in his glory in a special way to the people of Israel. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Unlike before the fall, the glory of the Lord was unapproachable, even by Moses. And yet, the glory of God rested in the midst of the Israelite camp. The tabernacle was always set up in the middle, the exact middle of the Israelite camp, where it was surrounded by the 12 tribes of the nation. So at the very center, at the very core of Israel, was the presence of this glorious God. And here we need to understand the main difference between the temple and the tabernacle. The temple came later. It was at a fixed location in Jerusalem once Israel was settled in the land of Canaan. Now, before Israel settled in the land of Canaan, they had the tabernacle. They needed something that could be moved about with them as they sojourned. So Yahweh gave them instructions on how to construct this moving temple that could be set up everywhere they made camp. The tabernacle was essentially a large tent. So whenever Israel stopped, they would set up or pit, pitch the tabernacle of the Lord. And then once they pitched that tabernacle, they could watch as the glory cloud of the Lord descended upon the tent. It was the central portable picture of the glorious God dwelling with his people. But even as we already hinted at, the glory of the Lord was not tame or safe. Moses could not even enter the tabernacle when the glory cloud was resting on it. Because of sin, shame, and fear, there was still distance between the glory of God and Israel. There were different levels of separation between God and his people. Those levels persisted even into the temple in Jerusalem. At the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could enter, and even then, only once per year. Only priests could serve in the tabernacle. The other Israelites could only come so close. Foreigners and anyone unclean had to be even further removed away from the glory of the Lord. And the Old Testament abounds with examples of men who did not take the glory of the Lord seriously, and many of whom were struck dead because of their error. And so in this picture of the tabernacle, we really see two sides to the glory of the Lord in the midst of Israel. 
First, there's this amazing condescension of God and being willing to descend and dwell among his people in a special way. He chose to be especially present in the middle of his people in order to display his majesty to them, in order to commune with them. And yet, there's still a problem. Israel was fallen and sinful, and therefore there needed to be degrees of separation between them and God. The Lord was dwelling among his people, but the people were full of shame and fear because of their sin. So on the one hand, we see that Israel was extremely blessed to be in a relationship with the Lord and to enjoy his presence. But we also see that this was not a full restoration of the fellowship that had been lost in the garden. There was still just something missing from this picture. This cannot be the final realization of the promises of God for redemption. There has to be more than that. And this is where we see a greater promise being given by the Lord through the Old Testament prophets. And there are a lot of them, too many to go through, uh, but there are few clearer than the promise of Isaiah 7.14. And it promises that, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel, meaning God with us, is the promise of greater fellowship with God. The tabernacle was among the people. But soon God will bring forth, bring about the birth of a greater tabernacle. And the effect of that arrival of this new tabernacle is summarized well in Malachi 4.2. It says, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. So the full reality of the promise will overshadow the old partial picture. In other words, the tabernacle is eclipsed in the realization of the promise of Emmanuel. So that takes us to point two. So point two, glory realized. So as I said, John 1.14 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And the reason for that is because in it, we see the realization of a restored hope, a restored relationship between the Lord and his people. John writes that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the living word, the eternal son of God, came down from the eternal glory of the heavenly throne room. He took upon himself human flesh and entered into his own creation. Everything that the Old Testament promised and pointed to was fully realized in the God-man Jesus Christ. You see, the problem of the tabernacle was that mankind could not truly approach the glory of the Lord without dying. But Jesus came in order that he could truly dwell among his people in a complete and a whole way. And this is where the proper understanding of the tabernacle will aid us in grasping the enormity of the incarnation. The tabernacle was made to be pitched in the midst of the people wherever Israel went. The tabernacle went. Or more appropriately, really, wherever the ark led, the people followed, and then the tabernacle would be set up. Well, Jesus came, and he pitched his tent among us as the greater tabernacle. And that's what that word dwell means in verse 14. One way to translate the word 
The Greek word for dwell is that Jesus came to tabernacle among us. His taking on of flesh was the setting up of the permanent tabernacle to which the old copy alluded. Jesus is not just a second uh, tabernacle. He's not simply a newer version of the tabernacle. The eternal Son of God is the original model on which the tabernacle had been based. In Christ, Yahweh himself came down in order to tabernacle among us. The Old Testament tabernacle, the whole purpose of it being given, was to teach and train Israel the way in which God would dwell with them. It was a tutor, in a sense. And so then Jesus came to tabernacle among us as our perfect mediator. The fellowship that was lost through Adam's first sin has been restored in Christ. Now, we often focus on the meekness and the humility of Christ in the incarnation. And Scripture tells us plainly that both are true. There's a reason theologians refer to the incarnation as part of the humiliation of Christ. And while the Son of God left the bliss of his heavenly throne room to enter into this world, he did not give up his glory. He remained truly and fully and totally God. In fact, he came in order that the glory of God would be with us. That's why John writes that we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. Those who saw Jesus did not see a lesser glory, but a veiled one. The glory of the tabernacle was not greater than the glory of Jesus Christ. On the contrary, Jesus is the richer, perfect picture of the glory of the tabernacle. Jesus is the same unbearable glory that Moses could not even approach. He is the return of the glory of God that left the temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. He is God himself garbed in human flesh. The same glory that the Son enjoyed in eternity with the Father and the Spirit resides still in this God-man. And there we see the role of Christ in salvation as well. His purpose is to make known the glory of the invisible Almighty Father. If you go down just a few verses to John 1.18, it says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him what? Known. Jesus came to show us his father. Jesus came to show us his glory. He came to restore the relationship that had been lost. And he did so through his life and his death. We see the glory of the Lord in the miracles and in the life of Jesus, but especially in his death and resurrection. As Jesus was about to be betrayed in John 12, He said to his disciples in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Speaking about going to his death. But it was not his life and death alone that displayed his glory. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 4 that Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father. So by his life, death, and resurrection, he displayed his glory and ushered his people into a new covenant era where the promise was fulfilled in him. The way in which God would rescue his people and dwell in their presence is realized in the birth 
of Jesus. And no longer do we have to approach His glory in fear that we will be consumed. That's not because His glory is less than it was in the Old Testament. Rather, the fullness of His grace has now been poured out. So the blood of Jesus and His completed work on the cross has granted us an access to the throne of this glorious and this holy God. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we look to Jesus, we are looking at the glory of God in human form. And as John tells us in verse 14, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Once again, this is built upon promises and statements from the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, 6, God spoke to Moses and he declared about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And when John says grace and truth, that is his version of the Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness is a common phrase throughout the Old Testament to describe the Lord and His faithfulness to His people. And this grace and truth that John uses here are just the New Testament counterparts to God's steadfast love and faithfulness. They mean essentially the same thing. God is loving and God is reliable. The Lord takes care of His covenant people. He is just, He is holy, He is good. And no promise of God that He has ever made has failed. And he cannot lie. Everything he promised in the Old Testament, it came to fruition in Christ. A better tabernacle achieved. Salvation through a perfect mediator and priest accomplished. A righteous king truly after God's own heart done in Christ. In every way, God fulfilled his promises of mercy and grace by sending his own son into the world. But as you all know, the work of Christ did not cease after the miracle of the incarnation. But rather, because of the incarnation, Jesus was able to do everything necessary in order to redeem us, in order to confirm all of his promises. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 summarizes it well. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That which was once lost in the garden at the fall, has been regained through the Word made flesh. So in Him we see the fullness of grace and truth who is the realization of all of God's promises of salvation. Stop and think about that for a second. The enormity of that. And yet when we think about that and then we think about where we are now, it's hard not to recognize that things aren't perfect now. Are they? Are things perfect in your lives? Not even at Christmas time. 
So why is it that our desires are all over the place? How can we arrive at what is supposed to be one of the most joyful times of the year and yet not feel joyful? Well, there's always something that can squash earthly joy. How can lights and presents make you happy when you've lost a loved one? What is good? What good is Christmas music when you're suffering or chronically ill? When your tradition has to change because people are growing up and moving on, where's your anchor in this life? Well, if your hope is that the situation in your life or the situation around you is going to be what brings you joy and satisfaction, then you will never have true joy. Reviving old tradition cannot satisfy you, nor does the selective memory of the past remember the problems. Your situation is ever changing in this life. Events, things, and people, they come and they go. The only thing that can satisfy the deepest desire of longing you have is to rest in Christ. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created by Him and for Him. God didn't just create you. He made you to find your full joy and satisfaction in knowing Him. He made you for Himself. And Jesus came in the flesh in order to restore your relationship with Him. Revelation 21, 3-4 summarizes the result of Christ's work well. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That is the glory that awaits us. There will come a day when we will walk in the fullness of God's glory without sin and without shame and without fallenness. Our perfect fellowship with our Creator will be the ultimate focus and the reward life in eternity. Now, don't get from all that that I'm telling you you shouldn't look forward to or enjoy Christmas. Quite the opposite. What I encourage you to do is this. When you feel that sense of longing or that something is missing, redirect those feelings after Jesus. Because whether you realize it or not, it is His glory that your heart is really seeking after. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus came that you might behold the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You came for us. That You were willing to pitch Your tent. That You were willing to take on flesh that we might know You. That we might be restored to the fellowship that Adam and Eve once enjoyed, but to an even fuller way, an even more perfect way. Lord, help us to rejoice in that. Help us even as we go about holiday celebrations and time with family. Help us to praise you and to remember what it is our hearts are really seeking after. Lord, implant that in us, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name.